Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 37. It's a big one. And I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The holidays are now in full swing. And so is the 2020 campaign for president. And in this episode, we've got an incredible, extended, candid interview with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. But before that, as always, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. That's the sound of an American fighter jet releasing flares just an hour after a Taliban truck bomb destroyed the walls of Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. So as most of the media in America is singularly focused on impeachment hearing drama, outrage about Peloton commercials, or whatever President Mayhem tweeted this hour, our 13,000 or so troops in Afghanistan are getting blasted at. And too often, they're getting forgotten. And this week, we found out definitively that not only have they been forgotten, they've been lied to. With articles of impeachment now dropped, with the New England Patriots allegedly cheating again, with another Democratic debate just one week away, and with Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and Festivus right around the corner, there are some important issues that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. There are issues you need to know about, and that starts with the release of what is now being called, and what will forever be known as, the Afghanistan Papers. Craig Whitlock is the lead reporter on the story, and he joins us now from the Post Newsroom. Craig, you read through some uh, thousands of pages of these interviews. What was the big takeaway that you uh, came away with? Just how blunt the people in charge of the war were about the failings of the strategy, about why we were there, about who the enemy was. Uh, one of the first quotes that leapt out at me was from Army Lieutenant General Doug Lute. He was the Afghan war czar in the White House for both Bush and Obama. And he said, we didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking in Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. He said, 2,400 lives lost were they lost in vain. When you see things like that from generals in charge of the war, they, they grab your attention. Yep. The Washington Post's Craig Whitlock will probably get a Pulitzer. Because it has now been revealed in black and white that U.S. officials have been lying to the American public about the war in Afghanistan for the past 18 years. A cache of government interviews and memos revealed that U.S. officials admitted that they had adopted contradictory strategies, unattainable goals, flawed assumptions about a country they didn't understand. Now, a lot of this we knew, but to see it in black and white is especially devastating. Douglas Lute, a three-star army general who served as the White House Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, told government interviewers in 2015, quote, we were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. He added, what are we trying to do here? We don't have the foggiest notion of what we are undertaking. It doesn't get more angering than that. It doesn't get more serious than that. So stick around for Mayor Pete Buttigieg's reaction to all that. He served in the Navy in Afghanistan. Now he's committing to be a president who will get us out of Afghanistan. 
out of the same war that he himself served in. This information is being called the Afghanistan Papers, a connection back to the Pentagon Papers, the Pentagon's history of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam from 1945 to 1967. It was officially titled Report of the Office of the Secretary of Defense Vietnam Task Force. The papers were released famously by Daniel Ellsberg, who worked on the study, and it ended up on the front page of the New York Times in 1971. The Pentagon Papers demonstrated that the Johnson administration had lied to the public, and to Congress. And that's much of the same of what's being revealed now, decades later, in the Afghanistan Papers. The Afghanistan Papers revealed that the American government had lied to all of us and to our troops, millions of men and women who've served since 9-11, and tens of millions of military families, and hundreds of millions of Americans. At a time when we're so divided, this This is a painful, disgusting, shameful, outrageous example of an issue we should all be able to unite around. But there's another reason we can unite in America right now. And it's for something that's not outrageous, not infuriating, not anger-inducing. Something that can be unifying, humbling, inspiring, and even fun. Army-Navy is this weekend in Philadelphia. The 120th meeting the 120th time that West Point and the Naval Academy will clash on the football field in the one game every year where almost all Americans can root for both sides. This has been a special season. You know, Army's always in the back of your mind. It's in the back of everyone's mind. It's something that these guys and this team takes very seriously. The biggest game of the year. It's our Super Bowl. The game is so much bigger than any other game we've ever played. First time they played this game, 1890. It's the closest thing you can get to to war. There's no other way to do it, but give it all you got. CBS does a masterful job every year of setting the stage, showing the stakes, and highlighting the greatness of this game. A game that showcases the greatness of America. And it's coming at a time when we need it most. It's a game when two sides are divided for four quarters, but united for eternity. And it's a lesson for all Americans in these times of violence, fear, and division. A reminder that there's still strength, unity, and love. Love between two sides, between brothers and sisters, to focus on a common cause. That's what our service members do. That's what the cadets will do on the field this weekend and what they do every day in the academies and overseas. That's what the Army I served in does and what the Navy Pete Buttigieg served in does. So while I'll personally root for Army this Saturday, on this show, in deference to Mayor Pete, in deference to all my Navy and Marine Corps friends, in the spirit of unity and patriotism, I'll make my own selfless sacrifice. I'll salute the Navy. And we need our Navy right now. We need our Coast Guard. We need all the services. We need the Army. Shit, we need the Salvation Army. We need all our forces aligned together to help us move forward. Because our Clark Griswold president, our bad Santa commander-in-chief, President Mayhem is at the helm of this ship right now.
and he's not stopping. But the Democrats are trying to stop him. And articles of impeachment are finally here. Today, in service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, the House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing high crimes and misdemeanors. That's New York Congressman and Chair of the House Judiciary Committee and seemingly terribly unfun guy, Jerry Nadler, laying out the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Republicans and Democrats are, of course, divided, but a formal vote on articles of impeachment could come before Christmas. So strap in. The president's ship is taken on water. The White House is taken on water. And heat rounds are flying all over Washington. And unfortunately, they're also flying again in the streets of America. That's not Afghanistan. That's not Baghdad. That's Jersey City, New Jersey. Jersey City, where two people stormed a kosher grocery store with rifles, killing three people inside and murdering a veteran police detective. The attacks are now being investigated as a possible hate crime, and people in that community are scared and angry, and so are police, and they have a right to feel that way. All of us do. Shootings are continuing at a stunning rate all across America. Multiple shootings at military bases just last week, and now this in Jersey City. Violence continues across America and across the world. But again, Americans are not the only ones that are angry. Righteous, courageous protests and activism continue to happen around the world, and especially in Iraq. Violence continues to engulf Iraq, and Iraqi officials said that the casualty total had risen to 25 dead and 130 wounded after a bloody night of attacks by unknown gunmen that are targeting anti-government demonstrators in the capital. Anti-government demonstrators continue to risk their lives and be killed and wounded. And Iraq is at a boiling point, and things are getting worse. And I wish our president was more outraged about that. I wish our president was more involved. I actually wish our president was more angry, at least about that. But he's not. He's angry about impeachment. He's angry about the media. He's angry about the Democrats. He's angry about Adam Schiff. And apparently, he's angry about toilets. People are flushing toilets 10 times, 15 times, as opposed to once. They end up using more water. So EPA is looking at that very strongly, at my suggestion. Yep, that's our president talking about toilets, or as you Navy people call, the head. Well, the question now we're all looking to answer is who will be the man or woman who tries to flush Trump down the toilet? Who will be the one to step up and show they have the guts, the fire, the toughness to beat Trump? So who's it going to be? Who's the one that's really hard? Now that, of course, is Rihanna, one of the baddest humans on the planet, someone who definitely is hard, and someone who knows about the Navy. 
You may not know this. The singer's fan base is actually called Her Navy, Rihanna's Navy. It's a strong, loyal group of people who love the hell out of her and have been inspired by her. Lady Gaga's got her little monsters. Justin Bieber's got his Beliebers. Beyonce's got the Beehive. And Rihanna has got her Navy. But unlike Trump, Rihanna hasn't fired the secretary of her Navy for standing up for Navy SEALs, protecting American values, and refusing unlawful orders and the pardoning of war criminals. So unlike Trump, Rihanna has a Navy that's super psyched about her. And unlike Trump, she served in uniform, at least in Battleship the movie anyway. She blows up aliens, she saves the ship, and she saves the world. And that's what every candidate for president wants to do, too. They want to be Rihanna in Battleship. And in life, they want a devoted following, they want to be on top, they want to destroy the bad guys and save the world. And they want to win the fight to be the captain of the ship, moving forward full steam ahead. And that election madness, it's chugging right along like a massive aircraft carrier, but one that seems maybe a bit outdated. One that's continuing to take torpedoes, gunfire, and the occasional kamikaze. That's this election. The USS Agony continues. So who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down? Always hard to keep track, but here's a couple of top-line takeaways. The next debate is set. The PBS NewsHour Politico debate will be at Loyola Marymount University in L.A. on December 19th. It's an early Christmas present, or maybe a lump of coal, depending on how you view these things. But they've named Judy Woodruff, Tim Alberta, Amna Narwaz, and Yamiche Alcindor to be the co-moderators of this next debate. It's a strong lineup, actually. And I'm hoping because it's PBS, they can be a bit better than the ratings-hungry cable spectacles we've seen in the last few debates. And it will be a much smaller field than we're used to. These are the candidates that are in. Vice President Joe Biden, our guest, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, billionaire businessman Tom Steyer, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and businessman Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang has qualified, and that is news. And that is Andrew Yang's walkout song. Every candidate picks their own walkout song. And that's Andrew Yang's. Mark Morrison, Return of the Mac. How amazing is that? It's another reason to love Andrew Yang. There's pretty much a new reason to love Andrew Yang every week. Not necessarily a reason to vote for him, but definitely a reason to love him. And when this is all over, he's still going to be around. And more than any other candidate in the race, I can't wait to see what he does next. Candidates had to meet the DNC debate requirements, which you basically need an abacus to figure out. But they stipulated that a candidate had to hit 4% in four early state or national polls or 6% in two early state polls from October 16th to December 12th, having, along with that, 200,000 unique donors, with 800 of those donors from 20 different states. Makes my head hurt. But if you're a guy or gal who made the stage, especially late, it's an early Christmas present. If not, you're probably feeling pretty grinchy right now. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. 
Yep, the DNC's a Grinch to many of these folks. And the following candidates are out. Cory Booker, who made the November debate, and Julian Castro, who hasn't debated since October. Now, their absence leaves the stage without an African-American or Hispanic candidate, both demographics that are critical to the makeup of the Democratic Party. Also out, Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard. But she announced on Twitter she wouldn't attend even if she met the requirements. Tulsi Gabbard's going to be Tulsi Gabbard. She continues to be the most controversial candidate not named Trump. Vexing or inspiring, weird or brilliant, opinions have varied. And as I've said before, she is one thing for sure. Interesting. Her supporters think she's a superhero. Her haters think she's a Bond villain or worse. Decide for yourselves. She joined us back in episode 30. So if you're new here, go back and check it out. Even if you hate her, maybe especially if you hate her. It's one of our most popular episodes ever but they're all out. Not out, Joe Biden, who remains near the top. And this episode might be part of the reason why. You're selling access to the president just like he is. So you got a damn liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that. No one has heard that. I see it on the TV. You see it on the TV. No, I know you do. And by the way, that's why I'm not sedentary. I don't, I get up and, and, and no, let, 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 let him go. Let him go. Look, the reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time and I know more than most people know. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on, let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's get my Biden wasn't taking any shit. Some people don't like it, but a lot of people do. Enough to keep him at the top of the national polls and hanging in there in Iowa and New Hampshire, where he might rally enough support to hang on until a surge hits him in South Carolina and Super Tuesday. But we shall see as the USS Agony chugs along. Now, Mayor Pete is definitely a frontrunner now. He could win in Iowa. He could win in New Hampshire. But he'll likely have some hard sledding in South Carolina which makes this the perfect time to connect with him. Is this the high point of his meteoric rise or just another major milestone on a road to the White House? At Christmas next year, we'll all know. But an early Christmas for all of us comes this weekend. Army Navy is this weekend. Now that's, of course, the village people with the now classic song about the Navy. After the tremendous commercial success of their 1978 hit YMCA, which unexpectedly became the unofficial hymn and a powerful advertising tool for the YMCA, the village people took on another national institution, the Navy. The Navy actually contacted their manager to use the song in a recruiting campaign for TV and radio. And they got the rights for free on the condition that the Navy helped them shoot the music video. Less than a month later, the village people arrived at a naval base in San Diego, where the Navy gave them access to film on deck of the birth frigate USS Reasoner. So the Navy was cool with the village people. In the end, the Navy didn't use the video and chose to remain with the traditional anchors away, which might have been safer, but far less interesting and probably didn't help with the recruiting. But the game this weekend will definitely help Navy with recruiting. And so will our guest. Our guest this episode 
is now at the top of the polls. He's come out of nowhere to capture the attention of America and the world. He's one of only two remaining candidates for president that served in uniform. A few weeks ago, we had Hawaii Congresswoman and the most controversial candidate not named Trump, Tulsi Gabbard. And the conversation was fascinating and revealing, and the response was overwhelming. And this week, we have the only other candidate that's a veteran and the single youngest candidate left in the race. Mayor Pete Buttigieg is 37 years old. If he's elected, he would be 39 years and one day old upon taking office. That would make him younger than Teddy Roosevelt and give him the status of the youngest president in American history. So regardless of where you stand politically, there's no denying that Mayor Pete Buttigieg is a rising star. And he's got high hopes for himself, for our country, and for all of us. Maybe too high. But he's changed the face of the 2020 race. But he's doing more than that. He's changing our culture. He's inspiring a movement. And he's giving lots of people, young and old, hope. And now he's changing the face of America. Hope is powerful. Hope was the fuel injection behind the last Democratic president we had. A man who few thought could win it all, especially before Iowa. He's too young, he's too liberal, he's too black, he's too different, he's too new. But hope and leadership and a magic that can never be quantified took him all the way to the White House and on to becoming maybe the most transformative president in American history. And hope can be a superpower. And Mayor Pete Buttigieg, he's got it. But as we used to say often in the Army, Hope is not a course of action. You need a plan. And in this episode, you'll hear more about what Mayor Pete Buttigieg's plan actually is. Maybe you're already sold on Mayor Pete. Maybe you're still kicking the tires. Maybe you'll never vote for him. But I'm pretty sure in the end, you'll respect him. Army-Navy is a clash, a game. But it's also an alliance grounded in respect. Despite their differences, they're all on Team America. And the same is true with me and Pete, and I hope with all of you, Republicans and Democrats and Independents. I'm Army, he's Navy, but we both love and respect this country deeply, and we'll fight for it, overseas and now here at home. And we didn't fill a stadium, but we did fill the awesome classic car club in Manhattan with angry Americans. A great crowd of people came from all across America and all around the world for our first ever live Angry Americans event, and what I hope will become the first of many. Members of our listening community, folks like you, came from as far as Pittsburgh, Oklahoma City, even Burkina Faso, to hear Mayor Pete Buttigieg, but also to have some good drinks, some good food, see some good cars, and hang out with some other good people who really give a shit about their country and about their world. And they came to see me have a conversation with Mayor Pete Buttigieg that will make some news. And maybe change the way you look at him, the 2020 race, the military, and the future of America. If you were there, thank you. If not, I hope you can join us in the future. And either way, strap in for a timely, important, compelling conversation with a man who just might be our 46th president of the United States. It's Army-Navy Week in America.
It's the Clash of the Titans. But as the host, and in service of America, and all of you, and the rough few weeks the Navy has had, thanks to President Mayhem, who battled with the Navy SEALs, who pardoned war criminals and fired the Secretary of the Navy, and maybe jinxed the football team. So because of all that, I'm willing to be a bit deferential to the Navy this week. Just this one time. America's Navy is a force. A force indeed. Five oceans. Seven continents. Whatever it takes. Wherever it takes us. America's Navy. A global force for good. And just like our great Navy, this episode is steaming forward and delivering a massive shipment of the four eyes. It's an F-14 Super Hornet of integrity. It's a Tomahawk missile of information. It's a powerful destroyer of impact. And it's a modern, gigantic aircraft carrier of inspiration. Yeah, we've got the four eyes. And we've got Mayor Pete Buttigieg. And we've got a live audience of angry Americans. We've got Army Navy. We've got the car question. And despite all the things out there that have us angry, We've got high hopes for America and for the future. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 37. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first ever Angry Americans event with our very special guest, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Thank you. So, people have come from literally all across America to see you for this first ever event. And first off, I just want to say thank you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, And I said it backstage, but thank you for being an inspiration. I really think you're inspiring people of all backgrounds across this country beyond politics. You know, we were both in the military and and your leadership example and the way you've carried yourself and the way you've uh, redefined leadership, I think is really important. I appreciate that. And I don't normally start off the interview with a ton of compliments, but but I think it's it's well-deserved and and we're grateful. Um, The first question I usually ask of all guests, and I'll ask of you, Mayor Pete, is what is your drink of choice your adult, your adult beverage of choice, <laughs> as we sometimes say in the military, and your team told me McAllen. Yeah, I love a, I love a good single malt. So McAllen, uh, I mean, making me pick one is difficult because uh, uh, I like the smokier ones too. I've been uh, renewing my relationship with Talisker from the Isle of Skye, which is pretty good stuff. But this, uh, uh, this is always a good way to end the day. So. Do, you, do you remember when you got home from Afghanistan, what the first drink you had was? Oh, that's a great question. Um, they... We stopped over in Germany on the way back and kind of eased us back in with beer, good German beer, because we, we were somewhere in Bavaria, I think. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember being damn glad to have it. We'll, we'll jump around and talk a little bit about current events, but we're sitting here right now uh, on the west side of Manhattan, 
And uh, as you were coming in, there was some doubt about whether or not you'd be able to make it in because they had shut down uh, the Holland Tunnel. Uh, there is a shooting in Jersey City, which is like six miles as the crow flies from where we are right now. Um, I know you're still getting up to speed, but I think it's a timely and important topic to start with because this show is about uh, so many people in this country that feel like they don't have a voice. Yep. Many people who are independent and unaffiliated and right. Democrats and Republicans. And they're angry because they're paying attention. And it's a righteous anger and they want to do something positive about that. And I don't think there's any issue that defines this community and maybe uh, presents a chance to unify this country like shootings. Yeah. Um, so any, any top line reactions or, or yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, as we speak, information's still coming in, but uh, it appears that at least one officer was lost, and, and it's a reminder of, of the dangers that uh, officers and first responders face every day. Uh, don't know that much about the other circumstances, but it's also part of a pattern where uh, we have come to accept being the only developed country where things like this happen on a routine basis. And the really unfortunate thing is this has been treated as a partisan issue. Uh, and it's very much a partisan issue in Congress. It's really not that partisan of, of an issue among the American people, at least when it comes to the basics around gun violence, uh, the importance of programs to reduce and prevent gun violence, uh, the importance of universal background checks for guns and red flag laws when somebody's a danger. This is something that not only a vast majority of Americans, but a vast majority of Republicans and a vast majority of gun owners agree with a mass, vast majority of Democrats that we ought to do these things. And it, anytime you see something commands such a majority among the American people. We got to do something here. And fail to get a majority among the American members of Congress. It shows you that something is warped or twisted in our system. I think the tide is turning because I think America has had enough. And a lot of the, the arguments are, are starting to kind of fade away before the simple fact that we know there are steps we could take that would save lives, not every life, but save thousands of lives in this country. And we've got to do something. And, and there's no excuse to just wring our hands and say we've we got to keep tolerating uh, living in a country where, uh, unfortunately, these kinds of incidents, whether it's a mass shooting or the kinds of day-to-day -day shootings that are uh, taking lives in communities around the country, including my own, uh, or the, the side of gun violence that gets talked about far too little, which is suicide. Uh, we, we just can't go on the way we're going right now. So you are the second candidate to join us on Angry Americans. The first was Tulsi Gabbard, the only other post 9-11 veteran, the only other person who served in uniform that's running for president. So I credit both of you for leading by example, coming on this show, but also, you know, driving a conversation and redefining what it means to be a veteran. And I want to get into that with you, Mayor. But when you think about that issue in particular, um, many veterans are gun owners, but many veterans also understand guns and understand the role that, that they can play responsibly and counterproductively in our, in our society. Right. Are, are we as veterans in a unique position to be bridge builders on this issue because of that familiarity? And personally, you know, how do you view um, your service as shaping your perspective on gun ownership and the extension of it on everything from mass shootings to, to suicide? Yeah, I'll say this. From the first moment that uh, they took me to the armory for the first time, and as you know, there's a ton of paperwork and everything's under tight control, you learn that two things are associated with firearms in the military. Uh, one of them is accountability and responsibility. 
And the other one is, is control uh, and making sure that you know what you're doing, you know what happens uh, to and with uh, weapons, that you know how to use them uh, at every stage in terms of your own personal responsibility to handle weapons responsibly. Uh, and in terms of the fact that the Army, Navy, you name it, the military as an institution uh, makes sure that nothing is kind of falls through the cracks. I mean, I can't think of a more uptight uh, part, uh, e- even relative to the way the intelligence community I was part of can be uh, about uh, a lot of different things. Um, the, the, just the rigor of the expectations in and around the armory that everything is by the book. I think reflects the fact that there's an awareness that, that with this kind of deadly force comes a huge amount of responsibility. And I think responsible gun owners in, in the civilian world in America, as a general rule, understand that. And it's why in families, uh, uh, it's so important to make sure that there is responsible storage, uh, that there is education about responsibility. And yet, even though we do that in the military, uh, families should, and as a general rule, do that at home. Uh, you don't see that happening in our broader American family uh, as a country, where we would, in the same way that that, that a unit would, or or that a, that an individual should say, "Wait a minute, like these kinds of of uh, firearms shouldn't be with uh, people who've demonstrated that they uh, can't responsibly have them." So you are, if you if elected, you'll be the first post nine eleven veteran in history to serve in the White House. You'll be the first, I believe, the first person who served in uniform. Uh, the younger George Bush served in the National Guard, the first veteran who had served in combat since his father, the first Bush, I believe. But your path into the military was was kind of an unusual one. Um, And it's one of the questions I I am, as a service member, dying to ask you because you were mayor. Right. You you were mayor. You had had gone to Harvard and you decided you want to join the Naval Reserve. Can you talk us through that experience where you walk into a recruiter's office and say, hey, I'm the mayor and I'm here to sign up for the Navy? (laughs) How did that go down? That's not the normal path. So, yeah. First of all, I want to qualify my service. I I would be the first uh, uh, war veteran since George H.W. Bush, but also uh, my service was nothing like George H.W. Bush. I mean, he undertook... uh, unbelievably courageous uh, actions, um, as as did his uh, generational contemporary, President Kennedy. I'm, I'm not trying to put myself up with them. Um, but I do think there's some value in having a commander-in-chief who ha- has had that experience of being deployed into a war. Um, so I was in the reserve when I became mayor. Uh, I'd already made, made that step. Um, but uh, I remember when I when I got to my unit and then it was around the time that, that I, I became mayor that, uh, uh, you know, folks have Google, like a lot of people in my unit never, they don't care. Like you don't spend a lot of time checking on what your, what your, uh, you know, fellow service members day jobs are. Um, and if anybody asked, I just say I work for the city cause I just didn't need to have that conversation. Right. Right. Then right. of course word gets around and, right. uh, and folks have fun with it. Uh, and so when the deployment happened, um, I, 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 it was really important to me that that not get out any more than it had to because I wanted, like every reservist does, the real standard you're holding yourself to, I think, as a reservist is you hope that no one can tell that you're a reservist versus an active duty member, right? If, if you've done your training right, then you should be interchangeable. And it's a kind of point of professional pride. Um, and for some of the people I served with, that was true. I don't think they ever understood that I had a day job, but I was in an Intel unit. People are going to Google the new guy. Right. And I got so much shit. I mean, they call me the, the honorable Lieutenant, right. There's a lot of that. I mean, you can imagine it's, it's inevitable and irresistible, I think. But it also makes you a high value target, right? You, you, you are more uh, valuable to the enemy 
if they snatch you up versus you know Johnny Sixpack, who might be in in the back of a Humvee, was that a consideration for you and for your unit? Uh, it crossed my mind, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'm not sure that. I mean, again, we've also got to put things in their place, right? I mean, Mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Um, Certainly is considered very important around South Bend, Indiana. Uh, I'm not sure in the geopolitical uh, grand scheme of things. It, it, but, it but the, but the enemy much, has but, Google too. <laughs> uh, no, that's true. Yeah, and I wondered. I wondered about that. You know, we were always careful to. You know, you take your name tape off if if you're uh, uh, with civilians and, and you don't have to uh, uh, be identified. And, and tried to make sure that I cut as low a profile as I as I could over there for for that reason. But of course, uh, you know, mostly you're just thinking about how to make sure you're minimizing all of the different ways you're a target when you go outside the wire. And I was not, you know, I wasn't combat arms, but the reason I was outside the wire a lot was that I was, uh, I was a, a driver. We called a military Uber. I was basically responsible often for getting people and in, in gear in my unit to the airport and back or around the city of Kabul, or occasionally we do a road trip to Bagram and back. And so you think about how to try to be comparatively low profile, um, but you're in a land cruiser, you got body armor on, uh, you can throw one of those scarves on, but you're not really fooling anybody, right? Um, and so you just got to keep your wits about you. There were occasionally times I'd, I'd go out of uniform and, and um, uh, uh, just have a polo shirt and kind of try to be super low profile, but uh, that had its own sets of risks. Yeah, I, I know you've talked about it a bit, but do you remember the moment you actually signed the paperwork? And, you know, we recognize as service members, especially at a younger age, it puts a profound sense of responsibility on people when you sign your service members' group life insurance. I remember yeah. the moment I signed my yeah. insurance and, dedicated it to my nephew who was a teenager at the time. If you get killed, yeah. who's going to get the money, right? Yeah. You have to make that decision. But do you remember the moment you signed the paperwork? And, and I'm really curious about who the heck your recruiter was, right? Like, <laughs> what was the reaction of that recruiter and, and how did they handle, even as a Harvard graduate, Right. right. It's not yeah. a normal thing for someone to walk in to if you walked into a standard recruiter's office or if you did it in a yeah. different way. But that, that experience for you, at the time, what did it feel like and what were you thinking? Yeah, so it was, um, it was a classic story of, of ups and downs dealing with military bureaucracy, right? So w when I first felt that tug in, I think, 2008 and, and started talking to a recruiter, um, one of the things I, I thought, I, I hoped they'd be impressed that I'd been to Harvard because I thought that would help me, you know, get accepted to the officer program. But most of all, I hoped they'd be impressed that I'd studied Arabic when I was there. Um, so I'd mentioned this to the NCO who was there at the recruiting station. Um, couldn't tell whether that really, you know, mattered to anybody or whether it was helping my package when I went in to try to get picked up for, for is it Intel. Like, is it like a strip mall? You walk in the strip mall, hi, I speak yeah, Arabic. I, I yeah. speak Arabic and I went to Harvard and I like to join the Navy. I mean, I think I was probably a little cooler about it than that, but, but yeah, something like that, right? Um, and I remember a couple months later, my package got handed to a lieutenant and she said, I see that you had a minor when you were at Harvard in aerobics. Is that something you think is, is real? And I was like, oh shit. Um, and ironically, years later, I wound up as the command fitness leader in my unit. Really? So I don't know whether that was connected or not. Um, I, I remember some, there are some of those moments where you just feel it before the deployment. I remember the moment I wrote my just in case letter and, and put it in an envelope. The moment of taking the oath actually was another classic anticlimactic big Navy moment. So I had pictured, you know, Richard Gere at the end, uh, uh, isn't it him an officer and a gentleman, right? This emotional moment, uh, or at least like, you know, me having my hand up standing next to a flag. So I'd been emailing back and forth with this recruiter as, as we were going through all the paperwork. Finally, the weekend came and um, she was out of Detroit. 
I was in South Bend. I traveled constantly during the week, so I had to be on the weekend or, or on a certain date. And she didn't want to come all the way to South Bend, and I didn't want to go all the way to Detroit. So uh, she proposed that we meet at a big boy diner in Battle Creek or somewhere like kind of halfway between South Bend and Detroit. Uh, and then we got there, and it was closed, and we wound up at a coffee shop nearby. <laughs> and uh, she's like, okay, well, if you want to put your right hand up and do the thing, you can. I was like, this is my moment. Like, give me my moment, you know? Um, so I'm a little jealous of friends who've managed to arrange to do their commissioning on, uh, you know, on the deck of the Intrepid here in New York or stuff like that. But uh, it was still meaningful for me, but, uh, uh, but maybe not one of those uh, kind of movie-style moments, those cinematic moments that you envision when you decide you're going to go serve your country. Everybody's got their recruiting and enlistment story. Everybody thinks there's going to be F-14s flying overhead <laughs> and, and yeah. salutes by, by fireworks and all that, and it, that, yeah, exactly. that rarely happens. But Mayor Pete, going back to uh, a question that we ask of all the guests on Angry Americans, when you were growing up yep. and you were making those travels around the Midwest, yeah. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, what was your first car? Mm. So the first car I was allowed to drive was my parents' 1992 Buick LeSabre. It was blue. It was enormous. I mean, just so big. And uh, uh, obviously not the coolest kind of in my, <laughs> my parents' LeSabre. But I'll tell you, it really handled well in the snow around South Bend because there's just so much metal there. Uh, the first time I... I bought a car. It was a Taurus. Uh, it was a 2005 Taurus. And uh, I kept it through most of the time I was mayor. At one point, the interns nicknamed it the Chick Magnet. And that's when I realized they were making fun of me. And <laughs> but it was a good car, too. I, I don't know. I, I, uh, someday I'll get a sexy car, but uh, I'm mostly about utility. Now I got a Chevy Cruze, which is, you know, um, I'm happy to have. The Beast would be a pretty sexy car. The, that is the, true. The, the vehicle yeah. that the president rolls yeah. around in. Yeah, I wonder what it has more mass to it, the Beast or that LeSabre, because it uh, <laughs> probably be a fair fight. Well, yeah. Um, speaking of, of fight, we, we are here right now shifting gears. We've got to talk about what I think many of us in the veterans community and many in America think should be the top story in America right now and seems to be pushed to the back with the impeachment uh, drama unfolding with now the shooting in Jersey City. But this week, the Afghanistan papers were released, which basically came out in the Washington Post and, and basically formally uh, confirmed for us that the government and, and government officials had been lying about the war in Afghanistan for almost two decades. Um, I, I know you're going to have policy positions on it. I know you're going to have a response in the press, but how did you feel as an Afghanistan veteran yourself when you saw that headline or you were on your phone or wherever you were, how did you feel when you got essentially confirmation the government had been lying about the war you were sent to fight in? Yeah. Well, angry, um, let down. You, you go, even when you're not too sure about the politicians appointed or elected above you, you still have some, you rely on some sense that the people in that chain of command above you have your best interests at heart, that they care about the truth and that they're doing the, their best to do the right thing. Because I'll tell you, everybody that I was immediately around, definitely you know, my OIC and, uh, and the enlisted folks that I was in charge of were people who got up in the morning and set out to do the right thing. And to see that that broke down somewhere way, way above where we were in the chain of command. And, uh, and to think about 
you know, the moments when I felt like I had to weigh the consequences of the comparatively little decisions that I was making. Um, but they weren't little to me, right? I, you know, we needed to, I don't know, if we needed to get some gear from Kabul to Bagram, kind of risky. Uh, I didn't have an MRAP or anything like that. I'm in an SUV. It's got its armor, but, you know, uh, um, it's a risk. And I'm thinking, okay, I can take, um, I can take the gunny sergeant who has done this a whole bunch of times um, and ask him to come up with me because there got to be two long, long guns in the vehicle, right? It's got to be me plus one. And uh, I can ask him to come, but he's just a couple weeks from going home. He's got four boys at home with Mrs. Gunny, seven, eight, nine, and ten years old. Uh, and I can ask him to do it, uh, knowing that, that he's the, the best qualified person to, to do this with me. Or I can uh, ask uh, an enlisted sailor that I know who doesn't have kids, uh, but also isn't as, as comfortable and prepared uh, doing, uh, uh, doing the kind of work that, that you need somebody to do as your eyes and ears when they're in the vehicle with you on a movement like that. And that decision only involved three people, but you feel that decision because you know the moral weight of it. And you, f- you feel so much. Um, this decision affecting that tiny number of people. And then you think that there are folks making decisions affecting thousands and thousands of people that have that same life or death quality, except multiplied by every day every service member is deployed. And they don't have that, they don't show that same sense of seriousness about a fidelity to the truth and the calls that they've got to make. And it's infuriating. So you've pledged to wind down the war in Afghanistan. Um, Has the release of the Afghanistan, what's now being called the Afghanistan Papers, changed your plan? if you were elected commander in chief and for all of us who've served for all of us in America, every president says they're going to wind down Afghanistan at this point. Why should we believe that you can actually do it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing we've learned is just how difficult it is for America to unwind itself from this conflict. But we've now gotten to the point where there are people there now who were not alive on nine 11. I thought I was one of the last guys turning out the lights when I left years ago. And we're still there and we can't go on like this. And now that we see just how much fecklessness and dishonesty there was as the mission drifted from responding to 9-11 to uh, securing the, the counterterrorism environment to at times feeling like we were shouldering the responsibility for Afghan becoming a prosperous liberal democratic society. Uh, we've got to draw a line around what our mission objectives are. I believe that we can and must end our large-scale involvement. I'm also realistic that we're probably going to have to have some kind of diplomatic intelligence and spec ops capability there for a while to make sure that it doesn't become, once again, a place where there's an attack on the American When you say a while, a while is a term we've heard for a while. What does it really mean? What does it mean to the guys and gals who have done 10 tours and want to know if they're going to do 12 tours right. or 14 tours? Like you, you are a meticulous planner. Yeah. You know, your, your entire career shows you know, tremendous foresight and, and you're a strategic leader. Um, but break it down. 
Like, yeah. do, do you have an act? Conditions change on the ground. Yeah, but I, mean, but I was going to say. But, but if I, you're elected president, yeah. what's the, you have to set expectations, right? right? And I think one of the things I hear about you a lot is that people say, I like him. They feel like they can trust you. But, you know, our commitments overseas are kind of where the trust of politicians goes to die. Yeah. For a good so, reason. Yeah. yeah. So can right. you put more meat on the bone? And, and what's the promise you can make, especially to, to the folks in the military, about yeah. what to expect, really? Yeah. So... I'd break it down into two pieces. There's the several thousand people on the ground presence that we have now that I thought I was part of the last throes of and that we just have to wind down. Can I impose a clock on it? I can't. As a, as a political candidate, making a promise that's going to lock in my presidency isn't responsible. But what I will say is it's got to be fast. Uh, it's got to be as fast as we responsibly can in a framework that is not just going around the Afghan government to the Taliban, which is what I've observed this administration often appearing to do, uh, but one that actually has all of the relevant parties at the table. And again, we're going to have to leave aside the idea that, that we're going to be the guarantors of, of peace and prosperity but what, there. But Mayor Pete, what is fast? So fast to some people is a week, to some people in the Pentagon, fast is five years. Yeah, it, it's not going to be a week. But if this is dragging on beyond my first year, um, I'm gonna, we're going to have a problem. Uh, now, again, some kind of light footprint like we had in Syria, that, that could be years. Um, but the whole point of looking at what happened in Syria is that a remarkably small handful of people were able to form that line between what was going on and chaos. And we need to set ourselves up to where all we need is that light specialized touch to make sure things don't uh, go off the cliff versus making sure that everything, uh, trying to, to, to have these outcomes um, that we haven't been able to deliver in the better part of 20 years with thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the ground. It, it feels like you wake up some days and the world's on fire, whether it's Northern Syria, Afghanistan, Jersey City, um, and we cover a wide range of issues on this show and this community. When I asked them, you know, what makes them angry? It's, it's everything from school shootings to infrastructure to the losing ways of the New York Knicks. There's a lot to be angry about in America right now, but um, you already touched on Afghanistan. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, what makes you angry? What makes me angry is when people in a position of leadership or trust encourage those they lead to look at other human beings, often fellow Americans, as something other than human beings. Uh, I think that the root of most social evil is when a person becomes capable of looking at another person and seeing something besides humanity. And we are seeing more and more of that in our country, and it is lethal. This will not get better without a radically different, I'm not just talking about a president who ideologically agrees with me. I'm talking about a radically different understanding of the responsibilities of political leadership. And in particular, the fact that just as political leaders have the, the capacity to divide and frighten and frankly push us into being more fearful and small and backward looking, that the better part of leadership is the ability to do the reverse. It's harder, but you can use not just the tools, the pulleys and levers of government, but just the voice that you get in leadership to build out a sense of belonging, 
that makes people just a little more secure, just a little more open, and just a little more decent. And time is running out for us to do that. And if we can't do that, then I am worried that the American project will meet its end in my lifetime. That's the sense of urgency I feel about this. When you look at racial divisions, when you look at the, the uh, poison that is being introduced into our politics, um, I believe we will live to see whether America rises to the occasion and gets over this uh, or whether it takes us down. I think, I think many people, especially listening now, share that concern. And um, we've wanted this show and, and this community to be on some levels, um, you know, it's a signal flare, especially around the issues of national security and defense. And uh, many Americans feel that, that tremendous sense of urgency, but they also um, are concerned about what looks like a democratic field that's eating their own, especially independents and unaffiliated who, who are looking at this saying, can you all please just get your shit together and figure out who's going to take on Donald <laughs> right. Trump? There, you know, maybe there's going to be a Game of Thrones moment where you're Jon Snow or someone else becomes Jon Snow and they all rally around you. But before they do, um, the, the, the criticism you face um, often is about experience, mm -hmm. right? You, if elected, you'll be the youngest president right. in history, younger even than Teddy Roosevelt, right? Um, but when you think about the experience of the last eight months, when I was on the radio in March, I was explaining to people how to pronounce your name. Now it's December, and you're leading in Iowa. You're leading in New Hampshire. Right. On a very, a people are still having trouble with the name a little bit sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> on, a, on a very basic level, yeah. you've been living this life that is extraordinary, an experience that's been extraordinary. You and, and your husband have been thrust into this spotlight. I had David Bellavia on the show a couple episodes ago who had received the Medal of Honor, mm. and his entire world has turned upside down. He's standing at the halftime of... of, of of NFL games and he's on television shows and it's this catapulting of his experience in his life in a way he never could have imagined. What has this been like for you, man? Like how, how do you, how do you keep grounded? How do you keep up on the news? I don't know. Yeah. Like I came in and talked to you. I don't know how you can even understand the 19 things that happened since we've been sitting here for, for 20 minutes, yeah. but on, on a human level, like how do you process all this from being in South Bend to now, you know, duking it out with, with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in front of tens of millions of people. Yeah, uh, it's heady. It's, uh, it's, it's an out-of-body experience sometimes. Uh, but uh, a couple of things keep it from, from swamping you as a human being. Uh, the first is a team, right? So uh, if I had to single-handedly be on top of everything that was going on in the world, I would, I would break. But um, there are hundreds of people who uh, make sure that everything from uh, you know, my relationship with a county chair in Iowa who's this close to coming around to endorsing me to ensuring that we have a reasonably sophisticated understanding of the latest developments in the Afghanistan peace talks. Uh, there's somebody there who is on top of it, who knows more about it than I do, uh, and who can help me stay informed and on time and aware and make everything work. So that's part of it. Just like in, I think, any profession, certainly in the military, uh, you, you got a team that, that, that can make or break you. Uh, and, and we got a fantastic team. Uh, the other thing is to have people in your life whose relationship to you doesn't revolve around politics. So that's where my marriage is so important. Chastin is going to care the exact same for me, uh, whether I'm president or not. And when we were getting into this race, when we were weighing, doing that final gut check, where the 
you know, our, our theory of the case checked out, the team checked out, the politics checked out. Um, and the question was just, are we really deep down ready to do this? He said, I support this if we make sure of two things, that we'll always be ourselves and keep our values, and we'll find some way to have some fun along the way. And, and that's what we've been able to do. Not that it hasn't been hard, both in terms of, of testing your values sometimes and in terms of testing your capacity to make it fun sometimes, but we've been able to do that. And so there are those moments when I'm at home, not to mention the dogs, right? So uh, talk about something that keeps you humble, right? Uh, they don't care. If I'm running for president, they don't care what happened in the last polls. Um, a few weeks ago, they got into some chocolate. And so Buddy, uh, Jason and I had to make sure that we, we um, basically force-fed them enough hydrogen peroxide to make them... I don't know if you know the standard procedure for if your dog gets no, into I some don't, chocolate. So, uh, please you, enlighten us. You need to get the chocolate out of the dog very quickly because uh, it can be toxic. And so I'm in the backyard... Uh, we're counting number of times each one of them has puked uh, until it's satisfactory. I'm like, I won't take you into the m- most gory details, but let's just say it, it brings you right back down to earth <laughs> to go from being on national television debating for the highest office in the land to you know, making sure your dog's okay. Um, and uh, uh, that, that's, those are kind of the moments that just uh, uh, you know, put you in your place. But it's a heady thing, uh, as it should be. We're, we're talking about a moment of unbelievably high stakes. And when you put yourself forward at my age or at any age, obviously you're, you're, there's something very audacious about doing that. But I also think it's that coming from a younger generation is really helpful right now. Um, in fact, it's happening around the world. They just voted in a new, uh, there's a new prime minister in Finland. I think she's 34. Uh, I'd be 39 taking office, same as Macron, who is increasingly the adult in the room in a lot of these multinational <laughs> gatherings, right? <laughs> Um, certainly relative uh, in many cases to, to the U.S. president, uh, uh, where age has not uh, turned into necessarily wisdom or, or, or judgment. Uh, New Zealand has a remarkable leader who I think uh, also younger than I would be taking off. So this has happened. Even, even the leaders that we're uh, uh, not so happy with, uh, like uh, Kim Jong-un, are younger uh, than, than 39. Uh, so we're seeing this moment of among world leaders, good, bad, and indifferent, uh, of, of a new generation arriving on the scene. And it's usually the kind of thing that, that the U.S. would be leading. Uh, we're playing catch-up this time. But I'll also say this from a more political standpoint. Every time my party has taken office in the last 50 years, it's been, every time we've won in the White House, it's been somebody who was new on the scene and had not run for president before, somebody who had a message about bringing people together around higher values, and somebody who represented uh, advancement generationally. And I think that's important to think about because there's so many folks I talk to, not just diehard Democrats, but a lot of independents who say, you know what, I don't care which one of you it is, but it better be the one who's going to win. Mm. Uh, and uh, I think we, we should think about that. But the other thing that I'm trying to do in building this movement is to reach out to independents, reach out to uh, what I like to call future former Republicans, who I try to be very transparent about the fact that we're not going to agree on everything, and I'm very clear on my values, and I'm not going to budge on the things we believe in. But we don't have to agree on everything uh, to agree that we need a big change. And I'm seeing a lot of people who uh, are ready to cross the aisle and be part of that new American majority. We, we're, we're getting deep into experience, and, and I'm not a person who will be looking at the age necessarily of a leader. I've learned that. I think many of us who've lived a bit and especially been overseas in places like that know that heroism and leadership can come at any age. 
Um, but on the question of experience, there's something else that I know that there, there are only two experiences in life that you only understand if you've had them yourself. And it's combat and parenthood. So do you, you have a plan for almost everything. Do you have a plan? Do you and Chastin have a plan um, for children? And if you don't, or you do, what is your answer to someone who might say, I can't vote for someone to be commander in chief who doesn't have kids? Uh, well, we're thinking about it. Uh, Chastin is designed, I think, I'd like to think I'd be a decent dad. Chastin is designed to be a dad. He's like just born to do it. And so uh, it's in our future for sure. It's in the going to happen zone, as a friend of mine would put it. Um, I've made some professional choices that have complicated our ability to do it <laughs> right away. But, uh, but it's definitely in our future, and, and I'm excited for it. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, talk about a whole different level from, you know, having the dogs kind of keep you down to earth um, is, uh, uh, is that kind of responsibility. Um, I'll also say that, that some of the conversations around experience in this race sort of skip over the whole thing about being in the military. And I think that is a very important experience that, that I've had, as is the experience of being mayor of a city of any size at a time when I think we're finding that local leadership is where we're increasingly raising our expectations because our expectations of Washington have collapsed. And if we can get more of the rigor that goes on in local government, you know, just the fact that, you know, here's one thing to think about. You never see a local government, like a city, shut down the government because of a partisan disagreement. That's unthinkable. I mean, you know, cities deliver water. You need water to live. So we just figure it out. Uh, you don't get to make up your own facts. You don't get to print money. Uh, you, you just have to do things. And I think we need that attitude and orientation and leadership to come to Washington before it starts happening the other way around. In, in the last debate, I felt like you kind of clicked it up a notch because the question is, who can beat Trump? That, that, I think, is a question for people of all political parties right now. And the question of experience will be one that folks will ask about you. But the question of toughness, mm -hmm. fight, yeah. um, you know, they go, they go low, we go high. Sometimes maybe you need to go a little lower than the Democrats have been going lately um, because it seems like they're often fighting each other more than they're fighting Trump. Yeah. Um, you're in New York City. He claims this is his home. There are some buildings in this borough that probably have more people in them than the entire city of South Bend, Indiana. So the, 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 the ferocity that he is used to and that he is bringing to this is different. Mm -hmm. um, why should folks believe that you can take him down? Because his tricks don't work in the same way on me. You can already tell. You know, He's got a nickname for everybody, but he can't settle on one for me. Uh, he doesn't talk about me much. Uh, and the reality is in order to contend with somebody like him, it's not going to work to just have like an equal and opposite version of him. First of all, morally, the implications of that are problematic, but also it doesn't work because if, if you're on his show, if you're playing his game, even when you're winning, you're losing because it's his game. And this is going to be an incredibly important discipline for the nominee to have that I intend to bring to that debate stage. In other words, when he does something wrong, you got to confront it. When he lies, you got to say what the truth is. Uh, you know, you have to return fire for sure. We also can't, we have to deny him the power to change the subject. That's been his most 
important power. And the reason he needs to change the subject, even if it's to himself by doing something that nobody thinks is good, the reason he keeps needing that is because he doesn't have answers on how to make our lives better. We've got an economy where the Dow Jones is off the charts. People are actually dying more and younger in the United States now. Like those two things should not even be possible to happen at the same time, but they are. Uh, it is harder and harder to be able to save for retirement and healthcare uh, and, uh, and education. Um, we have better answers on how to make life better in the everyday. And we got to make sure we have an election that's not about him, but is about you. And the more we let it be about him, the less we're talking about you. The more can, it's about you, the more you, we Can let. you do it, though? Because I hear the Democrats keep saying that. Yeah. And then he pardons war criminals. And then he um, abandons the Kurds. Or he just decides to start tweeting about something else. I get the aspiration. Yeah. I get what you want to do. But it's, it's really a two-part question. Can you snatch the mic back from him? Yeah. Right? That's the hard part. And I think a, a, an essential part of that strategy is... Can you actually get the Democrats together? You know, Bernie last time took it all the way. You know, Tulsi's doing her own thing. You've literally got all these different tribes that are often, in my view, warring with each other more than they are with with Trump. How are you going to do it? Like, how are you actually going to get them all together? Um, and, And maybe it's even tougher as a newcomer. Um, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I mean, I found in even in local uh, government, it served me really well that I hadn't come out of any of the civil wars that produced any of my competitors or uh, or, or some of the folks that I was dealing with. That I, that I just came from a different place, and I think that's that's ex- especially useful at a moment like this. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's no longer just this vague idea of a wolf at the gates, especially for Democrats. Uh, but honestly, for, for independents and, and a lot of Republicans of conscience who just hate what they're seeing in the White House, the wolf is through the gates eating our chickens. It is there. You can see what's happening. And this is a state of emergency. And in the right hands, that can have a unifying power. A third thing is you'll notice that my policies are designed to advance big solutions to big problems and do it in a way that can unify rather than polarize. So whether it's the way I'm approaching healthcare, uh, a way to make sure there's no such thing as an uninsured American, but without the division of the American people that would be associated with some of the more extreme approaches, uh, or any number of other issues, what I'm doing is building that American majority, not just for political reasons, but from a governing perspective, to actually get this done. In other words, I'm asking voters to measure the boldness of an idea, not by how many people it can piss off, but by how much it can achieve. The bigness of an idea, not by how many trillions of dollars it costs, but by uh, what the outcomes are going to be like. That, in addition to the fight, look, I don't mind fighting this guy. I'm frankly looking forward to some of the contrast but we'll you, be able to draw. You, you, you came but, after him especially in part by doing what he does, which was weaponizing the military rhetoric. Hmm. Like, he's a draft dodger. You went to Afghanistan. You started calling him out on that. Yeah, that, because that, he that has seems, to be called but, out on. But it, yeah. it's an amplification, right? Yeah. Part of what he has mastered is the populism mm-hmm. of many issues, mm-hmm. but especially of the military, of veterans' issues. He says the VA is better than it's ever been, right. and he's going to have war criminals literally right. stumping on, on the speech with him. Right. Uh, how, how much are you going to push that? How, oh, much, oh, are you, how much are you going to really lot, push that? In a way that's, that's not about him, it's about us. So, for example, we got to puncture this. Like, he thinks it's pro... Well, I don't think he even believes it, but he acts like it's pro-military to pardon a war criminal. 
And when he does that, by the way, he's playing into one of the worst slanders of service members that, that you and I hear from time to time, which is that there's no difference between a warfighter and a war criminal. So uh, he is tarnishing the uniform in countless ways, which is, of course, why the military itself doesn't have his back on this, but knows that it, w- that it was wrong. So what we do is we poke a hole in that real quickly. We show why that's not pro-military, why it's not pro-America, why it's not patriotism. But then we, we get into what patriotism is, what it means to lift up a love of country that begins with the understanding that our country is made of people. You can't love a country if you hate half of the people in it. We build a new and better patriotism than the shop-worn and thin one that he is selling. And sometimes that means a gut punch if, if you know, there's just some bullshit on his part that we got uh, we to just deal with. Most of the time, uh, it means pivoting very quickly from that into what it is we're actually building so people can see that it's better. You've been redefining patriotism. You've been redefining activism. Um, you've been redefining family. You've been redefining what it means to be a Democrat. Um, you're going to be around a long time, no matter what happens next fall. But if you don't win, what do you want to do? I'm in it to win it. Uh, and I'll tell I know you that's that- the answer. But I know, you, I know that's the answer, but, yeah. but if, you, if you had to choose, and let's assume VP is off the table, would you rather be VA secretary or secretary of state or go back to South Bend? I mean, have you, have you thought about what you will do? You have a plan for everything. <laughs> you literally have a plan for everything. And so, so what would be your plan if, if you don't win? The plan is to make myself useful. And the way I see I can do that now as improbable as it is, not what I had in mind when I ran for mayor, right, eight years ago, uh, but is to seek the presidency and use it to guide America through these changes that are coming our way. Uh, But at each turn in my life, I've thought about how to make myself useful. And sometimes that takes you to really unexpected places. I I never would have thought that making myself useful involved uh, going home to South Bend. The whole time I was growing up, the message in a place like South Bend was if you want to make something of yourself, get out which is what I did, uh, only to realize the more time I, I spent after I left that I belonged, that I was from somewhere, and I had to go back. Uh, and in the same way, it, it took some time for me to understand why it was so important that I make myself useful in my country's uniform. Uh, you never know what that's going to mean a year or five or ten years from now, uh, whether it's as president, as ex-president, or as something else. Um, but what I know is that we're at this moment where the, the condition of the country and the demands of the office call for something different. And I believe it's exactly what I have to offer. And my job is to get out there and talk to as many voters as possible. And if they agree with me, then, uh, I, then comes the hard part where I have to go make good on it. I appreciate that. But I also don't think you're up there going, VA secretary would be as cool as being secretary of state. Right, like there, 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 there is a there, there is a landscape out there that um, I think is important for people who are looking at government service, who are looking at politics, to understand um, because the longevity of you is in part what I think inspires a lot of people too. Yeah. You, you, in many ways, you're you're going to inherit the kind of moderate um, constituency that Biden's got. At some point, Biden's going to be gone. And a lot of those folks who are looking for a more moderate place 
in the Democratic Party and beyond are going to look to you for for leadership. And you have an opportunity to really inherit, I think, that that mantle, um, especially for folks who, who aren't Democrats and will never be Democrats and will yeah. never leave the right. Republican Party. Yeah. So you know, they're going to look for, and maybe I'm, I want to take yeah. this to a place because it gets to competence. Yeah. And that's one issue that Democrats have often had a challenge with is, is governing and maybe the best example for the veterans in the room, especially the VA. Hmm. I have been very critical of, of Barack Obama. I think he blew it on the VA. The entire Obama administration, the only uh, cabinet-level secretary to resign in scandal was Eric Shinseki, the secretary of the VA. So I think in many ways, the VA can be the place for Democrats to prove government works yeah. or to show that government doesn't work. When it's great, it's the GI Bill. When it's bad, it's the Phoenix scandal. Right. So I, I want to make sure, at least on behalf of the veterans, I ask you, I've heard your plan on VA. I think you're detailed. You're being thoughtful about it. But leadership matters, mm -hmm. especially in that job. So are there any names on your short list that you can share for who would be the secretary of VA if you're elected president? No names, but I'll tell you the qualifications I'm after. I know you're um, going to tell me that. Yeah. But no, it, wouldn't but, be, it wouldn't be responsible for but, me to name names right now, but, but I'll tell you the kind of person we need. Okay. Please. We need somebody, first of all, who is completely committed to the mission and is not interested in pleasing some of the constituency. You know, right now you see under, under this president, right? A lot of folks who see this as an area where they can get a slice and, and benefit uh, personally. And they have the ear of those who are making policy around veterans. I'm looking for somebody whose only commitment is to veterans and to the country. I'm looking for somebody who has demonstrated that they know how to undertake really complicated organizational challenges. I'm looking for somebody who's going to tell the truth because one of the biggest problems that can happen in a government unit, a business, certainly in a military unit, is when somebody doesn't want to tell the commander the bad news, right? And there's going to be more bad news before there's more good news in a lot of the stuff going on over there. Uh, and I'm looking for somebody, and there are different ways you can do it, but who has authenticated those, those other things I was just talking about by the choices they've made at difficult moments in their life. And I can, there are plenty of people out there who might be up to it. There may be some people I've not yet met who could be up to it. Uh, but what I'll tell you is that this can't be uh, left off to the side any longer because this is how America keeps a promise that is supposed to be a two-way promise between those who serve and the United States. And that promise is supposed to last a lifetime. And we've got to do better. I, th I think it's important that people understand. I think it's often overlooked that you're redefining many things, but you're also redefining what it means to be a veteran. You're smart. You're thoughtful. You're a, uh, you're a well-educated person. You're not just shooting guns and blowing stuff up and throwing punches. There is a negative stereotype of veterans yeah. that we are sure. either, you know, incredible soaring uh, pillars of, of superherodom or that we're broken and, yes. and, and we're, we're conned, right? Somehow we got conned into the military and right. we all love George Bush. We all love right. um, Donald Trump. But you've really redefined and shown a dynamism that I think is very, very important. And I want you to know that from me and from many of us who see that, um, showing that we can do anything. And I think older generations maybe understood that, but, but especially right now with the civil military, military divide where it is, you are redefining in such an important way what it means to be a veteran. Um, and I think you're a social movement leader. Beyond the politics, the way you're influencing kids and the way you're showing people what's possible is really at the core of what the American dream is supposed to be all about. And that, I know, is what's bringing a lot of people to you. 
but you also bring a positivity that is infectious. I see it around your team. I see it on your social media. I see it in your husband. There is an energy of positivity. So the, the last question I ask of all of our guests is, Pete judge, what makes you happy? Hmm. Um, being around people that I love uh, and, uh, and coming to know things that are lovable in people that, uh, that I, I've either just met or that I didn't see it before. Um, look, the world, the city, the country, uh, it's made of people. And the reality is that every human being is capable of a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. And what matters in leadership is what it draws out of us. And one of the extraordinary things that happens in a political campaign, especially the kind of hands-on part where you're out there just meeting folks and having the experience sometimes hundreds of times a day of somebody coming up to you and, and mentioning whatever is the most important thing in their lives gives you a sense of, of, of what people care about. And there are the, just these flickers where you see what makes uh, somebody wonderful. And, uh, you know, I get it the most when I'm at home uh, with, with Chaston and, and, and with, with friends and, and with family. But um, sometimes I get to see it in strangers too. Uh, and that just fills me with happiness. And it fills other people with happiness. And I think it's, it's coming at a time where um, politics is not a place we go for happiness. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> but and we got to change that, right? Because yeah. politics will be what we make of it. Yeah. And right now it sucks. And if we allow that to continue, um, it, it's going to, it's just going to snowball. Um, it's up to us. People forget that. Like it is completely up to us. And now's the time. Like there's never been, certainly in my lifetime, to shift this and turn it around. And it's, it's not uh, that kind of sense of hope is not from my youth. It's from my experience. It's from seeing that uh, uh, huge changes are possible if you have the right level of awareness and energy and courage. And I see a moment shaping up that as bleak as our politics can be in 2019, that we could set ourselves up so we could look back at 2020 and, and actually feel some measure of pride. There's an event happening this weekend that gives America a special pride, and it's when Army plays Navy. It's, <laughs> it's the one time when I think, people say the Cowboys are America's team. I think that's bullshit. Army and Navy are America's team. And all you Cowboy fans can take a seat, okay? <laughs> because they really are. And we'll see that this weekend, right? It's about yeah. the purity of sport, and it's about uh, patriotism in its best form, but it's also about student-athletes, and it's about leadership. Right. And it's kind of the one game where everybody's rooting for both sides. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to be rooting for Army. Clearly. You're going to be rooting for Navy. Navy's got to win. Um, you said you've, you've never been, but do you, are you going to make a prediction? Ooh, uh, I mean, I got to go Navy all the way, right? Uh, uh, it uh, uh, feels like a good year for Navy. It is a good na year for Navy. I mean, as you know, rooting for Notre Dame, every time Navy comes to town, you're nervous. Yeah, a little bit, yeah, because they always bring their best game. They got this unique offense. Uh, uh, it's, it's fun to watch, and uh, uh, yeah, I feel good. We'll it, it's, a, it's a gift to America every weekend, it is. and I hope folks will, will watch it and enjoy it, even if you're not a sports fan. I hope you go. Um, One of these days, I hope I get yeah, to go. If, well, if yeah. you're not going this year, then you may be going for the first time as commander-in-chief next year. Sounds like a um, great way to arrive. Trump's going this weekend. It'll be interesting to see if Navy boos him 
after all the shit he's done to the Navy in the last couple of weeks. They won't boo him. They'll keep their know. military bearing, yeah. but he will be there. Um, but America will be watching, and it will be a gift, which takes me to our last point, which is the giving of the gifts. Huh? This is part of the tradition, and your right. staff probably didn't fully brief you on this, um, but we give every guest three gifts, three kinds of gifts, right. since the beginning of the show. And as we thank you for many things, I want to present you with a couple of gifts. The first is some American-made oh, by the veterans of Oscar Mike, nice. Angry Americans merchandise, All right. made in the USA. You guys can give it up for Stand. Oscar Mike. Yeah, you know. right. Give it up for veterans unless you hate America. Thank you very much. It's a good workout um, shirt. I like it. Uh, and then the other quiz I was informing your staff about is since the show started around Easter, mm. You're our 37th guest or our 37th episode. We've asked every single one to choose. If you had to choose a color of peeps, wow. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, yellow, blue, or pink, and why? Yeah, it's got to be yellow. Yeah. Why? Well, accuracy for one thing. I mean, right? <laughs> accuracy. Yeah, it's yellow. That's such a Mayor Ooh. Pete answer. Birds are That's, yellow, right? <laughs> Do those kinds of birds, I assume. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna go, plus, like, uh, you know, that's, you got to start with the basics, like like the fundamental peep, right? Like, is, like, if you had to pick one for the dictionary picture, it's going to be yellow, right? Probably. Sarah Jessica Parker called them the OG of peeps. There you go. Yeah. And I think your answer is a close <laughs> second. That was a very good answer. And lastly, um, every show... We talk Ooh. a little bit about whiskey, oh, and good. I go to the same liquor store, and I look on the shelves for something that inspires me, given our guest. Now, I don't know if you know about this brand. I this is not. called Clyde Mays Straight Bourbon Whiskey, oh. and the reason I chose it is because you're a man of precision and attention to detail. If you look in the fine print, it's the only whiskey I've ever seen that's distilled in Indiana. There you have it. Did you know about that? I did not. We got a great... Uh place in South, veteran-owned business in South Bend, actually, called Indiana Whiskey, but probably hasn't made its way to the shelves around here yet. This looks, uh, that's, look at that color on that. That it's looks good. great. So going forward, that may be your All beverage right. of choice than McAllen, especially if sanctions make it too expensive for Americans to consume in the next <laughs> couple of months. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much. That um, looks good. But Looking forward to that. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, I, I want to thank you, most of all, for your leadership. You know, in the Army, we learn about leadership being about duty and respect and selfless service. And outside of politics, I think you've been putting your butt on the line and you've been showing the kind of courage that Americans root for. And no matter if they're Republicans, Democrats, everything in between, and even, even if they don't vote for you, I think all of America's rooting for you. And, it, and it's good to have someone to root for. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful for your leadership, grateful for your candor and your time and wish you all the best, and thank you for joining us here on, on Angry Americans today. Well, thanks. It was a great visit. I appreciate it. Thanks for your work. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Ho, ho, ho. You know you need some ho, ho, ho holiday gifts, right? For Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Festivus, you know Festivus, right? Well, you need some gifts for Festivus, for the rest of us, or for whatever holiday. And you can't afford a Lexus, and you can't afford a Peloton. Maybe some of you can, but I can't. And who the hell gets a Lexus for Christmas anyway? But I got you. 
Angry Americans is a movement sweeping the nation. You know it. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, you can represent that righteous patriotic spirit this holiday and all year long with kick-ass merch that is 100% made in the USA by the crafty elves at Oscar Mike. Oscar Mike is a veteran-owned, American-made lifestyle apparel brand that exists to support the Oscar Mike Foundation. Their goal is to keep injured veterans on the move in every aspect of life and to inspire everyone to do the same. But they have awesome gear. They have great t-shirts. They have hats. They have wristbands. They have yoga gear. All kinds of great stuff that can go under the tree, and it's 100% made in the USA. And they believe that staying active and focused on that next upcoming goal can help you realize your potential, and they want to keep you inspired to do just that. So go to OscarMike.org. Check out the amazing gear from the veterans at Oscar Mike. It's a great stocking stuffer. It goes under the tree. It can go under your Festivus pole. Whatever you need, Oscar Mike, OscarMike.org. Check them out, and happy holidays. Okay, it's time to turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, agony into positive impact. Whether you've been around for a long time or you're new here, it's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. We don't just talk, we take action. Every show, I offer a way of converting your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and most importantly, makes a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. And this week in Jersey City, the helpers came out again. They stepped up when others wouldn't. That's what it sounded like in Jersey City. That's what Detective Joseph Seals ran into and what other cops and first responders ran into. That's the sound of gunfire. And they are the people who run into it. When the shit goes down, look for the helpers. And this week, one of those helpers was Detective Joseph Seals. And in his service of others, he lost his life. He was shot twice in the head and his upper arm and pronounced dead at the hospital. He was the father of five kids. It was just last month that he went all out for his little girl in a princess-themed birthday party in November. He even hired princesses to come in and mingle with the guests, and he told his mom he'd work double shifts, anything, to make sure he could give his daughter the birthday party she wanted. That's the kind of guy Seals was, a guy who put his family first. Seals was a 40-year-old married father of five who joined the police force in 2006. He was promoted to detective in November 2017. Seals came to work that day just like he did every day, looking to make his city safer. And he was ambushed. He was assassinated. This was the warlike situation that he was placed in that countless men and women are placed in all across our country every single day, and especially around the holidays. When many of us are going to be taking time off or spending time with our families, they're going to be walking the beat or riding in a cop car or standing on guard or putting out fires. They're the ones that are there when the rest of us are enjoying the holidays. 
Detective Joe Seals won't be returning to his family. His wife and five children will have a holiday without him. We can't bring back Detective Joe Seals, but the Jersey City Police Officers Benevolent Association has set up a fund for his family. You can go to angryamericans.us and find the link, or I'll tweet it and post it on our social media. They set up a GoFundMe page to support the SEALs family, to go to his kids, to pay for their education, housing, and any other expenses for the five kids that Joe loves so dearly. We can't bring him back, but we can take care of his kids and try to make their holiday a little bit easier and their future a little bit brighter. And most of all, make sure that the helpers know that we appreciate them. When the gunfire starts, thankfully, there are people like Joe who still run into it so we can be safe. And that's something we got to remember, especially around the holidays. Do your part this holiday. Help the helpers. Step up and support the SEALs family and other first responders in your community. And if you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. All right, huge thanks to a whole crew of folks that made this really important, groundbreaking episode happen. First of all, big thanks to Mayor Pete Buttigieg and his entire team, especially Chris Meager, Liz Smith, Tori, Kata Connolly, and especially his security and logistics team. This shootout had happened just a couple miles away from where we were having this event, and they got him there on time, they got him there safe, and we pulled off this event under some pretty difficult circumstances. But also, just my thanks to Mayor Pete and his entire team. They're a top-notch operation in a real class act and thanks to all of you who came to the live show all of you who came from all over the place especially robert pra who came all the way from pittsburgh dave dickerson from oklahoma city and umar legge legge who is originally from burkino faso lives in the bronx and is a total inspiration and was there with us uh, thanks to everybody who came out it was an awesome event and i'm so grateful for everybody's help and support also, thanks to Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, radical Roy Belchek, and our whole outstanding team at Righteous Media. They pulled off this event, they power this show, and they make every day of this holiday season happier. Thanks to Bill Schultz, the maestro, our Santa Claus. He's dropping gifts for all the little boys and girls in every episode. He's like the Dr. Dre to my M&M, and I'm very grateful to him. Also, thanks to Gabe Goodman, Matt Ford, and the awesome team at Blue Duck Productions. They shot video for the entire live event with Mayor Pete, which you can check out at angryamericans.us. If you were there, go check it out. If you weren't there, go check it out. You can see the crowd. You can see some of the before and after scenes, some of the behind the scenes stuff it was really really a cool event we're going to do more of them going forward but thanks to the blue duck team for making it happen and i hope you'll check out all that video stuff also thanks to oscar mike our awesome merch partners check out all their new designs at angryamericans.us now order right now and you will get it in time for christmas free shipping for stuff over 60 bucks and it's time for thank a listener every week i want to thank a few of the elves that make angry americans possible you listen you support you tweet and i want to thank you for listening i'll make you famous yes and i will make you famous if you call 833-33-ANGRY that's 833-33-ANGRY 833-332-6479 call anytime leave me a voicemail tell me what's got you angry and maybe we'll use it for a future show seriously do it do it 
call and you will get your chance to sound off for America and the world to hear you like this. Hello, my name is Mary Wilson from Rockford, Illinois. And what has me angry is how the world has completely ignored Tibet and what China has done to Tibet and what China does to a lot of other areas. Um, So, yeah, I think we need to return our focus to Tibet and what happened back in the 40s and 50s and 60s and continues to today. Thank you. Mary, thanks for calling. I hear you. We hear you. Your call is really a testament to how many issues are out there that should inspire righteous anger, how many are often forgotten. So many in Tibet, across China, and especially inside Hong Kong right now are fighting the good fight. They're fighting against tyranny, they're fighting against hate and oppression, and we stand with all our friends there and around the world who are also rightfully angry and who are fighting back. Great message, Mary. Thanks for sharing. Thanks to a couple other folks. Keith Humphrey, out in Kansas, USA. He tweets it at Keith Humphrey. He's a boss at Jet Airworks. He's a U.S. Navy veteran. He's a Gold Star family member, a military advocate, an actor, screenwriter, politician, runner, diver, sober, dad, and pop-pop to many. He's an all-around awesome dude. He's been a big fan of this show. And he tweeted that he was on a road trip to Dallas and said he was clearing his head by filling it with angry Americans. And then later on, he tweeted that he was somewhere in Oklahoma and he had just finished episode 36 with Harry Smith. He said, outstanding podcast, great to hear and relate to Harry, as well as feel the hope that he and Paul Rykoff give. Still angry, though. Dude, glad that we could help you take your travels across Dallas and across Oklahoma. Big shout out to everybody in that area, and my thanks to you, Keith Humphrey. Next up, big thanks to Matt Gallagher, a man who is from Brooklyn by way of Cleveland. If you don't follow him, he's at Matt Gallagher Zero. He describes himself as an author person, but he's the author of Youngblood and Kaboom, which you should definitely check out, and Empire City, which comes out in April 2020. His Twitter bio says, Bring the Ruckus. He is one of the most important writers and voices of our time. I love Matt Gallagher. You should read everything he writes. He writes articles. He writes books. He's awesome on Twitter. He writes about the Cleveland Browns. My condolences. But he joined us for the live event with Mayor Pete, and he had a really great tweet about it. He tweeted, Unique experience this afternoon to hear a live podcast combo between Pete Buttigieg and Paul Rykoff. Pro, Mayor Pete spoke from the heart about his Navy service and the betrayal he feels from the Afghanistan papers. Con, frankly, he was crazy vague on his VA plans. Bullseye is always Gallagher. Absolutely right. I'm with you. He was crazy vague on his VA plans. You were not crazy vague on your tweets or in your support. So my thanks to you, my friend. And thanks to Matt Legrone, who is in Denver, Colorado. He tweets it at COGator06. He's a lifelong Gator fan, long-suffering Dolphin fan, Colorado Avalanche, and Cleveland Indians fan. And he tweeted, Paul, your interview with Harry Smith just put my life into total perspective. His recollection about his interview with Commander Al Carpenter, wow. Only truth was his captivity. This is why I listen to you. Amazing. Well, thanks, dude. I'm glad that you loved it. I appreciate you tweeting. Uh, And thanks to everyone who's loving the show with Harry Smith. A lot of folks gave us really positive reactions about that. Harry Smith is a legend and an icon and just a super cool guy. So if you haven't gone back and checked out that episode, definitely check it out. It's great for the holidays. So are a lot of our past episodes. If you go all the way back to episode one with Willie Geist, check out Aaron Mankin. Check out David Bellavia, who won the Medal of Honor. Check out Tom Colicchio. If you've got some time off on the holidays or you're going to be doing some driving, go back and check out the old episodes. They're great, and we got you. Also great for the holidays, 
this great call we got. Mike Tipton, Lawrence, Kansas. Thought I'd say what makes me happy. Unexpected smile. Free cup of coffee and thank you when you wear your veteran hat. The joyful play of children. Letter from an old friend in a mail. Or an unexpected short day at work. Hope things are going groovy for you, Paul. Thank you very much, brother. Rock on. Love the podcast. Dude, I love that so much. Mike Tipton breaking it down. He's one of our most active members in this community, an awesome supporter, hardworking American like so many of you. You're like the beating heart of this podcast, this community, and this country, especially around holiday time. So thanks for a poignant reminder, my friend. I'm glad this show can give you a boost or a break. And happy holidays to you, man. And yes, I'll make you famous. Call 833-33-ANGRY. You can be just like Mike. Leave me a voicemail. Tell me what's got you angry or what's got you happy or anything else you want. And maybe we'll use it in a future show or use the hashtag AngryAmerican. Shoot us an email. Go to AngryAmericans.us and holler on just about every social media platform. Thank you all and keep the feedback coming. I'm grateful to all of you. And as always, always, thanks to my family, my amazing wife and two boys. They are incredible humans. My wife was in North Carolina and flew back the same day to be there for a live show. She braved the weather. She just missed the chaos of the shooting in Jersey City. And she was there for me as always. And she loves Christmas, which brings so much joy and happiness to all of us. And so do my boys. And this week, this week... It's time. Okay, people, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m., Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh, my God! Santa here? I know him. I know him. Yep. It's my younger boy's first time really ever meeting Santa. And that's a big deal for a nine-month-old. It's also a big deal for my four-year-old, who is beyond excited and focused. He's very focused. But this holiday, I'm grateful for them, for their health, and just for their never-ending happiness. Even at 5 a.m. or at 2 a.m. or all the other a.m.s, if you're up late and you see me tweeting, you should know that I probably just got done making a bottle or changing a diaper. And even for that, I am thankful. And just like I'm always thankful to you, dear listener, for tuning in, It's been a great year so far, and we're going to finish strong. So tell all your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on Apple device, leave me a little Christmas present and leave this show a quick review. Subscribe now, and you will get it hot and fresh waiting under your Christmas tree every Thursday morning at 0 dark 30. That's usually around 03 a.m. Eastern time, just in time for your Thursday commute to work. If it's late, my apologies, but hang in there. Your Santa Claus of content will be coming. We will try our best to get it up every Thursday, all holiday season, including the day after Christmas. And Wednesday nights, check out our social media for a hint on who our next guest will be. If you can guess the guest correctly, you'll win some very cool Angry Americans goodies. And I got a really good one, a really surprising one coming next episode. It will be someone very different from Mayor Pete, but someone who is even more iconic and someone who is also important and inspiring, someone who's been a part of our lives for almost an entire generation, someone who has also defined the holidays or a holiday. You will like it, you will be amused, you will be inspired, and you will be happy. 
definitely keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. Go to angryamericans.us for tickets if you want to join us for the next live event. We will have more coming in 2020 in New York City and around the country. We'll have good food, good drinks, good music, good people, people who share your values, share your interests, and have the same commitment to our future of our country. And it's some damn good fun. So stay tuned, subscribe, and share, and we're going to keep this movement growing week by week. We're going to end 2019 strong and power into 2020. And of course, remember, even during the holidays, it's okay to be angry and know you're not alone. We're all a little angry, and that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. And especially around the holidays, keep some high hopes. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. Stay vigilant. <laughs>